2: If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use.
1: Today's cool fact of the day is that people with red hair need about 20% more anesthesia than people with brown or blonde hair. And we think that's because they have a different MC1R gene, which is what causes the red hair and fair skin, and mice with that gene have a higher sensitivity to pain as well. So this means that if you have red hair, I mean natural red hair, that would mean that maybe you really are more sensitive to pain, and you also probably have a harder time detoxing some other chemicals in your environment. So those freckles that make you cute may also make you a little bit more sensitive to the world around you. Everyone's talking about red
2: light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com.
1: Today's guest is a really, really interesting guy. I've been a fan of his work for a while, and I'm really stoked to have him on the show. He's an expert on intermittent fasting and how it can help you lose weight and gain muscle. He's also the author of a book called Eat, Stop, Eat, which covers... A method of intermittent fasting, which is there specifically for losing fat while keeping your muscle mass and energy. And now if you're listening and you've listened to a few of these episodes from me, you would understand why I think it's pretty exciting that we're having this conversation because I kind of do this sort of stuff a lot. That means that our guest is none other than Brad Pilon. Brad, welcome to the show.
3: How's it going, bud?
1: I gotta admit something, Brad. Hit me. I've read your stuff. Right. There's only one problem. I've never actually heard you say your last name, right? So tell me I didn't just butcher it.
3: No, man. Pilon is is the most accepted way. If if you want to get kind of French Canadian, you could say Pilon. But uh Pilon is the preferred over a pylon plan and all the other weird ones I get.
1: Awesome, I, I usually just get called ass spray, so I think you win in any yeah. case. So. <laughs> fair enough. All right, so you can tell this is the first time we chatted, but I feel like I already know you because, uh, because of your work and just because I, I think we have a lot in common from that perspective. Um, Your blog is on bradpilon.com and you're also someone who grew up in Canada, which is kind of cool. I live up here in Canada now, but you're on that other side of the country where they speak foreign languages and stuff.
3: Exactly. Yeah, over in uh, Ontario, just about an hour outside of Toronto. So we're in the same country, but man, what are we, like seven hours by flight?
1: Yeah, exactly. Different worlds. (laughs) Now, speaking of different worlds, you're an interesting guy from an education perspective because... There's lots of people who, you know, studied nutrition, and there's even more people who studied uh, uh, PE, essentially, you know, physical exercise, um, you know, exercise science and things like that. Um, But you've done applied human nutrition. And I have to say, the difference between nutrition and applied nutrition isn't that clear in my mind. Will you explain what makes what you did applied?
3: (laughs) I will. And uh, I'm going to preface it by saying that it was just as confusing to me. So I knew I wanted to go into nutrition. And I'm looking at the course outlines at my school, University of Guelph, for Applied Human Nutrition and Nutritional Sciences. Two different courses, completely different courses. And I think, all right, Applied Human Nutrition, because I like humans, I'll go that way, right? So <laughs> what I found out about uh, probably right by the end of first year is Applied Human Nutrition is the course you would take to become a dietitian. Human biology or, or nutritional sciences, that's what you more would take if you want to become, you know, a, a lab geek in, in nutrition. So my friends who are nutritional sciences, you know it's true. But uh, so <laughs> my one ended up being uh, nutrition, but a lot of information on counseling. And, of course, I did my first counseling class, and I was like, what? is this, right? So I actually tried to transfer out, it's a huge long story, I wasn't able to, but was able to take some of the credits in some of the courses that I wanted to kind of blend it. But to give you an idea how messed up that is, part of the curriculum, this may have changed, I'm old now, but part of the curriculum for nutritional sciences was nutrition, exercise and metabolism with, with Dr. Terry Graham. So like a frontier guy in the caffeine research knows his stuff. That was like mandatory for nutritional sciences but an optional one if you're an applied human nutrition. So, yeah, <laughs> a little different thinking there, but that was my, so my undergrad is in applied human nutrition, which is the one you would take if you want to become a dietitian
1: in Canada. Got it. And, from there, you went on, and and I, forgive me for kind of going through your, your background, but yeah, no, man. I mean, there's a lot of people who do different things, but you've done this kind of all through college before you got into being an author. So, like, I, I talk with, like, science journalists, and I talk with, you know, biohackers, and then you've got, like, the pedigree, so it's, it's <laughs> kind of cool, because you also studied protein synthesis, and specifically the amino acid leucine. Yes. Uh, yep. So... All of that knowledge happened before you started doing intermittent fasting, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, All right. but but you've got a pretty solid foundation here. And what what in those studies made you start looking at intermittent fasting and come up with the eat stop eat ideas?
3: Oh, well, that was kind of fun. The uh, so I went from my undergrad, didn't want to be a dietitian, ended up in research for a sports supplement company in Canada. Spent six years doing R&D there. So creatine research, leucine research, protein research, phenylalanine, you, you name it. Yeah. And then during those conversations, I kind of realized I was on the wrong side of the table. You know, I was, I was the guy with the money funding the trials, and I kind of wanted to be doing the research. So... Decided so to leave the job because that's what every smart 30-year-old does is, is drop a, a good job and go back to school. <laughs> and uh, I went back to study nutritional sciences. So this time, more of a science-based dig in. And through just a ton of crazy happenstance, we ended up deciding the best place to start would be to study no nutrition. So what happens when you're not eating? And then the idea was, because obviously not eating is horrible for you, right? So oh, You'll die. I die. Mean. You die. So you build on that, and since this is so bad for you, this is why my awesome diet is good for you. And then in the first couple months of that original research, I was looking at no eating, is when I had to kind of make a decision, because everything was different than what I thought it should be. Like, I had six years in the bodybuilding industry, uh-huh. so I knew you had to eat every three hours, totally. and it had to be 300 grams of protein, right? Like... You had to eat at night. You had to wake up at 2 a.m. to eat. You, you knew, this was common knowledge. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. So when I'm reading through these papers being like, hey, their metabolism didn't slow down. Well, ah, this paper is just wrong, right? Garbage. <laughs> and then you read the next one, you're like, they didn't lose muscle. And you're like, oh, more garbage. Then, but by the time you're 12, 13 papers in, you've got to make a call. You're either everybody else is wrong and you're right, or maybe you don't know as much as you think you do. So I decided to kind of redirect and study the effects of short-term fasting on human health metabolism. And that it, was my graduate
1: work. There's that interesting phenomenon that, that happens with with all researchers because we're humans, uh, and it's it can't be because it isn't, or it isn't because it can't be. But like, that can't be possible. And and that kind of logic is harmful to, to true research because yeah. it lets you you know conveniently throw out the garbage. But then you're like, well, wait, I just had an experience that matched the garbage, and now there's three garbage studies. And you're like, oh, exactly. wait, that was actually innovation, not garbage. But the first one might have been garbage, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah.
3: never know, but,
1: yeah. so but when you're building up. You experienced this and you're like, okay, so not eating has benefits that we didn't know about. Exactly. And then what benefits did you find?
3: The ones I was most interested in c- coming from bodybuilding, right? So build muscle, lose fat. Mm-hmm. Everything else is just minutia. Totally. Uh, like, like
1: living a long time and stuff like
3: that. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> the abs, my friend, that's all that matters, right? So the, the main thing was from the bodybuilding perspective, if you didn't eat every three hours you lost muscle. Like, it was, this was a guaranteed known fact. So to start seeing people in trials where, you know, we're measuring lean body mass via DEXA and we're not seeing changes, and DEXA is pretty good. It's, it's a good measurement. You know, it would be considered gold standard. We uh, That was the one that really kind of struck me. I'm like, okay, hold on. If they're not burning muscle, what are they burning? And then, of course, you look back to the research and you're like, oh, they're they burning fat.
1: That was air. You can't yeah. burn fat if you're not no, eating anything. No, it was air,
3: right? <laughs> and then the hard part was like, well, if they're burning fat, but they didn't eat anything, then it's body fat. And, and the fun part about that was the, I mean, you're aware, but for everybody who, who's not, the, the measurement of the fuel mix that you're burning is a very, actually, simple measurement just of your, your breath, the oxygen you're breathing in, carbon dioxide you're breathing out. It's It's fundamental to human physiology and respiration research, it's kind of, if, if that was wrong, everything we know about human physiology is wrong. And that measurement, the RQ, consistently showed that these people were burning more fat as their fast went on. So actually, they're going, like, are, are you kidding me? Like, I've, I've been eating every three hours, waking up at 2 a.m. to eat because if you don't eat, you burn muscle. And yeah. Now I'm finding out are just burning fat. It was It's that's all I had to do was just take a break from eating, and that was the part that was most interesting to me. Uh,
1: the The whole idea in in the nineties, you know, I, I was into the the natural bodybuilding. I, I was never competitive. I was a three hundred pounder. I have stretch marks that mean I'll never like be pulling my shirt off on stage because I, I, I was a fat ass, right? But when I I look back on that, I, I was doing the same thing, and and it as you've probably found in your research. like If you're getting excessive amounts of protein, there's this little thing called ammonia that can affect human performance. And and Also, I was overfeeding on protein. I was getting not enough fat, not enough of the right kinds of fat, and I was eating all the damn time because I didn't want to lose muscle because muscle helps you burn fat, and I was desperate to burn fat.
3: There you go. Exactly. My favorite was... uh... The working in an office building with with about two hundred mostly guys into bodybuilding with free access to protein. The, the <laughs> ventilation system had to be one of the best ventilation systems in the world because it, it was bad sometimes. Especially you know you adapt to it. It was the new hires and new employees who are like, oh dude, you're okay. I'm I'm happy you're into the lifestyle. You should go home for a couple of days.
1: <laughs> it, it's a, a known problem with excessive protein because it tries to ferment in the gut and. Yep. And I've seen some research, it's in uh, the Bulletproof Diet Book that's coming out, about like the fermentability of different types of proteins in the gut. And and, like collagen actually makes a reasonable ferment that creates butyric acid almost as well as resistant starch. Uh, And it doesn't smell too bad. But if you're trying to ferment like eggs,
3: Whey, casein eggs, the standard Yeah.
1: Oh, that's just that's just not okay. It's right.
3: not good. It's not good for anybody. right? Yeah.
1: And and do you think there's a bio like a, a biotoxic lipopolysaccharide kind of effect from having protein doing that in your gut? Have you come across that in your research?
3: I haven't, but I would be interested in long term, right? I mean eight six to eight weeks is a yeah. typical kind of high protein diet thing is what they study. You start at 16, you go to your 25, before you're kind of out of the bodybuilding lifestyle. That, that's a big period of time to be really consuming ultra-high amounts of very processed protein too, right? Like yeah. When you're eating 300 grams of protein a day plus, it's not typical for that 300 grams to be from steak and vegetable sources and chicken. It's normally about a 50-50 split of food and whey casing shakes. Right? So very, very processed, quickly digested, hits the gut very, very fast, um, doesn't take time to, there's no coagulation or anything, It just right through. That would be what I'd be really interested in to see what that does long term.
1: You also have that idea that between 16 and 25, your prefrontal cortex just finishes kind of wiring itself in at 24. So now if you've increased the number of biotoxins in the gut, which surely has to do with the bacteria that are there and lots of other factors, but if you do that during a critical formation phase of your brain, I don't know what happens. I I don't know that it's bad either, but it's it's a question in my mind
3: yeah the um well I mean we're tangent for a second, because I love this topic, but applying research to the population based on research on a small subset of even age is my favorite one. you know the up until age about 24 25, we're growing and developing physically, mentally like you said. then after that, you're kind of fighting periods of decay. So you have a, a study group of people who are 18 to 45 I mean fun at the edges of that. Bring it back in. You have very different types of human beings, but we kind of just <laughs> lump them together yeah. and apply it to everybody, right? So yeah. I, I totally agree. Breaking it down by age it would be is kind of fundamental to understanding nutrition because I think it changes as, as we age.
1: I've talked to a few companies who are, are now starting to do like real, real research, looking at your genome, looking at your gut biome, looking mm-hmm. at your age, looking at your gender, looking at your activity levels, and then munging all that data together. And who knows? In another five years, we may have shockingly good information that's like, for you, because of where your ancestors are from and because you live in this region, we'll just pull that together, like your ideal protein ratio uh, for the next two years, uh, you know, protein to fat and how often you should eat and everything else. We may be able to actually tease that out to the point that you go to a restaurant, you are know, like I, I would like option seven, six. And, and then yeah. <laughs> that's my dream anyway. But Yeah, I love it. It's good.
4: ButcherBox delivers healthy 100% grass fed beef, organic chicken and pork directly to your door. All their products are humanely raised and free of antibiotics and hormones. You can think of them as the neighborhood butcher for modern America. Each box comes with seven to 10 pounds of meat, which is enough for about 20 individual sized meals, depending on how big you are and how hungry you are. You can choose from four different box types, all beef, beef and chicken, beef and pork, or the mixed box. Uh, My favorite would be the all beef. You can also customize your box with add-on types like bacon, ribeye, and beef bones. I love that stuff. You get some high quality bacon, you get ribeye, which is the best steak you can get, and beef bones are how you make beef broth. It's basically your meat for the month in a box. They also include step-by-step recipe cards and a note from the butcher describing the cuts and farms featured that month. I've seen these guys everywhere from Mark Sisson show to the Today Show, and for good reason. Sourcing high quality meat you can trust is hard, especially in some areas of the country. And the fact that they deliver for free nationwide is pretty cool. By taking out the middleman grocery stores and purchasing direct from farms, ButcherBox can help you buy meat at a lower cost and then you benefit from that. So it's a cool business model that makes sure you get the best value instead of just passing it off on the supply chain. The price is just $129 a month, which works out to less than $6.50 a meal. Every box comes with enough meat for at least 20 individual-sized meals, and shipping is free nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii, sorry guys. Order now and get free 100% grass-fed burgers. You get six six-ounce burgers in your first box. And use the code bulletproof to get an extra $10 off. Get started by visiting butcherbox.com slash bulletproof. You can cancel any time without penalty, so give it a try. Visit butcherbox.com bulletproof to get your free 100% grass-fed burgers. You get six of them and $10 off with the code bulletproof. Get your meat now. That's butcherbox.com bulletproof.
1: So let's jump back to intermittent fasting. Let's I just imagine... go
3: right back into that. Yeah, we'll, we'll that, just yeah.
1: transition smoothly. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I think that's a good segue. We did well there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Hit me. Talk about glucose regulation, and specifically neuronal resistance to injury when it comes down to intermittent fasting, because having tough neurons is badass.
3: It is, it is badass. I My personal view on it, without getting too technical, is it's just another example of the hormetic effect of fasting. It, it's a small stress that we go through that tends to strengthen the system, right? So um, I guess that's a, a good generalized description of of hormesis, right? So the body's introduced to a small stress, and that small stress actually has beneficial effects. If the stress were to get too large, it would become a negative on the human body, but a small amount tends to allow the body to learn to adapt. And I think that a lot of what happens in brief periods of fasting, so maybe not a prolonged fast, but a brief one, tends to follow this kind of hormetic curve when it, uh, applies to the brain, when it applies to autophagy, when it applies to even inflammation responses, all of these areas, I think it's that small brief stress that causes the, the, what we consider a beneficial long-term adaptation. I don't think it's much different than a weight training session. You yes. know, if you were to look at your body right after a weight training session, and whether it's functional MRI or something where you're actually looking into the muscle. If it was like a minute after a ton of calf raises, you would be like, "Don't, don't ever do that again." Whatever you just did to your calf, don't ever do that again because it's a, it's a bloody mess. <laughs> it's like a grenade went off. When you look three or four days later, you're like, "That's it. All the muscle fibers are organized. They're a bit bigger." Whatever you did, that was that was good, right? So I think it's a lot like that. Whenever you deal with small fluctuations, whether it's the increase in blood free fatty acids, if it's a, a de- decrease in blood glucose back to a basal level then has to be supported by the liver whether it's changing over to you know a mix of blending fuels that includes ketones all of that tends to be a small stress or at least an introduction of a a new metabolic pathway maybe we haven't been using because we eat all the time and and that introduction it, it strengthens the system so that's kind of how i feel it it affects everything not just the brain but m- your entire body as a kind of holistic approach.
1: Have you come across fasting induced adipose factor in your research?
3: I did, and you probably found it in the same area when looking into the gut microbiome. Amen, brother. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so I was really interested in that. I mean, the, the name was a tip off that I should maybe look into it more. Yeah, than, a little bit. Yeah, and if fasting induced, telon is in. So, but yeah, really fascinating. And, and the thing I like, because I've been very interested in the gut microbiome, uh, very interested in um, even like endos- endocrine disruptors from yes. the environment. Yeah. But people know me for fasting, so I always try to like to tie it in. So when I found that, I was thought, okay, now we have a connection. Now we have some way the gut microbiome is interacting not only with the foods you eat, but it's also contributing at times you don't eat or in equivalent matter. So that I thought that was a very interesting thing that isn't maybe getting as much Playtime as it deserves, but only because, of course, it's known by three or four different names right now, right? So
1: I, I covered it in the bulletproof diet, and it, it, there's another unrelated study to that one that looked at the impact of coffee and butter on the the gut microbiome. And right. funny enough, uh, especially if you add uh, the brain octane oil to it, it, it has it, it's essentially going to tell the the biome in the gut like it is not a good time for you to tell my body to store fat. It, it's suppressive. Basically, of you know, that kind of bacteria. But polyphenols, the ones you find in coffee, <laughs> yeah. are actually feeding the bacterioides, the ones that don't have the the fasting induced adipose factor. So it's kind of a complex way of saying, like, your gut biome is telling your body to store extra fat or to burn extra fat. Like, it's amplifying what your liver makes. Yes. And funny, I, I mean, I'm one of the mechanisms of action that I'm hypothesizing for why I was magically able to like eat stupid amounts of food and actually lose weight when I was trying to gain weight, um, like 4,000, 4, calories a day for two years kind of thing, um, that I think that it had to do with, with that. And in the morning, if you're not feeding the bacteria anything they can eat, whether because you're just eating nothing or mm-hmm. whether because you're eating only fat, which doesn't really feed the bacteria, uh, you can have an amplification of that one signal, and uh, that's probably a part of why people get some benefits from things like that.
3: Interesting, because the the one thing we do know from research is that while um, obviously amino acids and, and glucose do have mm-hmm. the ability to sort of knock you out of the fasted state, um, fat doesn't, right? So that you still have to deal with the fat. is still there. It doesn't yeah. disappear. But in terms of actually affecting what I would consider a classic example of the fasted state, growth hormone increases, insulin decreases, uh, glucose back to a basal level, that happens even when fat is fed at an amount that's you know, roughly equivalent to your basal metabolic rate, so large amounts of fat. So it, it, it is very interesting because now we're looking at really two separate systems, your, your body and your gut microbiome working together, which only makes sense. Otherwise, why would they be together, right? They have to be synergistic somehow.
1: Well, they they could be. They could also just be, like, parasitic. So, <laughs> so I, I mean, like... Synergistic,
3: like, parasitic, I, you know?
1: <laughs> I, I, I come I come at this from a computer hacker perspective. Like, my background is um, decision support systems, which is a subset of artificial intelligence and, like, you know, literally hacking. In fact, I accidentally wore one of my hacker T-shirts today. Um, like, great segue. But anyway, uh, uh, one of the first things you do if you want to take control of the system, whether it's your body or someone else's computer, uh, is you want to get in there and look and see, has anyone else already taken control? Because I could exploit their control mechanisms. And when I started looking at my body, I'm like, why was I 300 pounds? Why was I fat and inflamed all the time? And that gut biome, well, they're not there for my best interest. They're there for their best interests, yeah, yeah, And point. their best interest is, um, well, I took over the body. I was like, you know, I don't care if he doesn't have a six-pack, but I want to make sure he has, like, extra fuel in case there's not enough food for me because, you know, this is my walking support system as a bacterium. Right. And you'd say they aren't that smart, but emergent behavior happens, so they don't have to be smart, but they just have a core set of rules. And, and I'm like, okay, these little bastards are telling me to store fat when I don't want to, so, like, like take that. Oh yeah. And you look at
3: how their communication, they they share like DNA the way we would text message each other, right? They're just like, Oh, you you need this here. There you go, right? Like so they adapt unbelievably quickly, and it's funny we're calling them they, like they're a different unit, because they actually are. Interesting, from from what you just talked about, the only takeaway I have is that Dave is going to be responsible for Skynet. I think that's what I took (laughs) from that
0: that whole hacking.
1: Bio-Skynet, it's totally
3: different. Totally different, yeah, okay,
1: good.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The flesh around the Terminator, good for you. (laughs) All right, that's evil. (laughs) But yeah, no, in terms of the gut microbiome and its role in fasting, you know, it's, it's one of those niche areas right now where we almost have to look to the placebo groups who weren't yeah. eating and see what happened to them to get an idea. But pretty soon, you know, it, research takes a while. So you've got your six to eight week study that actually took about 14 weeks to do. And then you have your, your whole process of writing revisions, getting it published. So in a couple of years, I think it's going to be another big area
1: so now we've kind of pumped up intermittent fasting we we talked i'm actually fascinated that you've looked into what happens if you eat only fat because i honestly when i started some of my bulletproof coffee experiments I'm like i feel freaking amazing but i didn't have the, the all the research that i have now about okay what are the reasons it's doing what i can feel it doing and i can measure it doing um and i came across stuff similar to what you did that said okay fat uh, fat doesn't have the same effect as protein or sugar on the body, so if I just do that, which is not natural, I don't think very often we like. Oh, look! I'll just eat the hump off the buffalo with nothing else and just walk. Yeah, that, I'm just leave after.
3: the rest for the crows, right? Yeah, <laughs>
1: um, or maybe I'll make a nice smoothie out of it, right? So, um, given that that you've got that, um, I would love to get your professional opinion. You can say positive or negative on on the whole idea of consuming only fat during an intermittent fast, just for energy or for feeling good. uh,
3: That's the the hard part, because I I know from a a weight loss point of view, you still have to deal with the fat, it still Mm -hmm. exists, but in terms of a feel-good, energetic point of view, it's hard to measure in trials in in a way that will ever come across as significant, because what you're asking your subjects to do is be in tune with how they feel, with out the placebo effect of me saying, "Hey Dave, how do you feel right now?" And you're like, "Oh crap, uh, good. I get. Oh, I never even thought about it. I feel, you know." So, I, I think there's something there, and, and I think maybe the best way to do it would be instead of looking at, um, you know, just a placebo, you'd almost have to go coffee versus coffee with fat. you to use, you know, your thing, or or just fat versus some form of placebo rather than just the fast, right? Oh, so like
1: olestra thing. or something.
3: <laughs> yeah, or maybe. Capsules. Funny enough, it turned out great <laughs> in comparison. Yeah. So, but yeah, uh, so I see the idea, and um...
1: well, here's an interesting result that I think is going to fascinate you because because I actually did this study. Um, we did uh, seven measures of of short term executive function, like three back memory and finger tap time and stuff like that, quantifiable, uh, university grade kind of measures, and we tested people on uh, coffee. From a selection of corner coffee shops, Mm -hmm. um, coffee lab tested to not have mold toxins in it, and both of those options with butter, right? So we're basically black coffee versus black coffee and butter no-mold coffee versus butter regular coffee. Cool. Okay. And what we found was putting butter in coffee improved whether it was bad coffee or good coffee, that it improved almost everything except one thing – I think it was a, a visual color perception thing, like what's when like slightly true down. Test or oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, all, all the other ones essentially no mold coffee outperformed moldy coffee, and butter though didn't always outperform. So we, we were expecting you know if there's butter in your coffee, so we were expecting a, a substantial placebo result for butter, but butter underperformed, which means that we probably didn't have too much placebo in it. If butter still outperformed. Um, not putting butter, but there were a few cases where butter wasn't as good as just the difference between the coffees.
3: You'd almost want to wonder if, if doing the same trouble with the same coffees but decaf if possible and get yeah. the, the caffeine out of there is maybe a confounder.
1: That's a good idea. So I, I'm funding some more research on on different fronts. There, I, there's like an inflammation side of what coffee oils do for you, and then there's the coffee gut biome. So I, I am looking into this more. Of course, everyone will say, "Well, you have coffee, and you have you know this excessively purified coconut oil stuff." So like you, you know, you know, because you're from the supplement business, like half the people will say, "Well, that was funded by industry." I'm like, "I'm not really industry, and I'll publish the data." Like, yeah, yeah well, <laughs> It's The biggest issue is
3: that like I being the guy who handed researchers money, I will tell you that, you know, you don't really have that much say, right? If anybody's known, you know, a a very well known uh, person who performs research, they're rather opinionated and they don't really take advice kindly. So, Um, yeah. (laughs) You know, especially when you're, you know, younger and don't have 20 years of postdoctoral experience, um, it tends to just, they just ignore you. So
1: yeah. hiring real scientists is amazing because, like, they act like scientists. Uh, it's it's a good thing.
3: Yeah, it, it is a good thing. Now, with the coffee thing I, and the even the butter thing, I find it interesting because getting back to supplements, right, so I have, you know, Brad's whey protein, but in any given time, I may be sourcing my whey protein from four or five different providers depending on cost. Right? So my protein may be different now than it was last year. Nothing's changed on the label. I just bought it from someone else. So your your butters, you know, if you don't know exactly who they come from, they may change dairies depending on costing,
1: right? So we we controlled that. We told everyone to use Kerrygold Irish butter which comes from a selection of Irish farms. But right. What does change in grass-fed butter is seasonal, Seasonal, right? And they all did the test at the same time, but was their butter three months old or six months old? Because that changes the season, right? Yes. I did not control for the age date on the butter. Crap. Like, we probably could have recorded that, but it wouldn't have been statistically significant because the sample wasn't big enough.
3: I have a hard time with um, any any dairy stuff uh, yeah. because you, you and I are really, really lucky. Being in Canada, I mean, a lot of our cows are just grass-fed. You drive by and you see them. So when everybody in, in the U.S. was, was very kind of up on trying to find grass-fed butter and grass-fed. I mean, I'm out in the country, too, so I should caveat that. Yeah, that but I helps. kind of looked around being like, how do you not find them? They're right here. And it wasn't until going down in the, in the U.S. to visit a lot more. I was like, oh, I get it. Like, there's fundamental differences between Canada and then
1: Ireland, Scotland, U.S., in terms of how you raise your cows. Well, it turns out that getting pastured butter here is is in Canada is really hard because... Most of it is fed grain because you get higher just for the dairy thing, and there's also a, a national uh, quota system. Where they finish,
3: right? Uh, grain finishing, I
1: believe. Yeah, but not for dairy cows. Dairy cows, they just always human grain because you get like twice as much milk that way, even though it's lower quality. But for the, the beef cows, yeah, some of them are grass fed, some aren't, and some of them are finished to get the marbling. And it's gotten to be such a point that finally Organic Meadow started putting a pastured sticker during the summer months for for their butter. That's the only national brand in Canada where you get pastured butter, and there's a few local ones. Before that, there was, like, this little, like, butter smuggling racket where people people would. (laughs) The
3: black market butter.
1: Yeah, you have, like, a special vest with butter sticks in it. You, like, wear it carefully and try and make it over. No, I'm kidding. But but there are literally thousands of Canadians who drive over the border and buy two cases of grass-fed Kerrygold Irish butter because it's not legal to import in Canada. Right. And it's like, come on. Like, couldn't we just get it here? You know, we have in, I mean, I'm going way off topic here,
3: a Guernsey milk. Nice. So it's Guernsey cow. And so they have Guernsey Ice Cream and Guernsey Buddy as well. And um, for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, different cows, different breeds, yeah, I guess, species, different of species,
1: species, species yeah. produce very
3: species. markedly different milks, right? So in, in flavor, in color, in macronutrient, and micronutrient profiles. And so we all just have gone with sort of the, the standard across the board, but I just, lucky, I think it's Evie Manor is the name out, out here in Ontario. And they just make a fantastic, Guernsey milk. When I taste it, I was like, I, how can milk be so different? And <laughs> that's when I realized, wow, that must affect then ice cream, butter, like everything going down, the creamer, like everything. So it's interesting we don't have that much selection available to us compared to what is actually available to us.
1: Yeah, and there's you know, the French butters and the German butters yeah. and, and all this. And, you know, we may sound like butter snobs, but I proudly call myself a butter snob. Like I, <laughs> just like I'm a coffee snob and I'm a butter yeah. snob. Like it matters. Uh, yeah. Plus, it, there's a taste.
3: There is a taste difference, absolutely. All right, we've done butter, we've done coffee. What do you want to do now? And and
1: I wasn't planning on any of that, but (laughs) you just actually can answer questions that I have that are like, okay, like I've never asked anyone else about fasting-induced adipose factor who knew what it was, so boom, you got it. Here we go. I wanted to ask you another question that's uh, near and dear to me. I've done a lot of research on fertility and epigenetics. Uh, In fact, I I was a a co-author of a, a book about that. Uh, with my wife, and when it comes to intermittent fasting in women, it's become kind of common paleo knowledge that women can get more adrenal stress and they can get fertility problems or even, like, lose their cycle entirely when they're intermittent fasting. What's up with that?
3: Okay, so this, this, I won't lie, this irks me, and it irks (laughs) me because what we've taken is known physiology, known biology, and... Used the crap out of it because it was beautiful for SEO. When you couldn't get any SEO at all for <laughs> intermittent fasting, all you had to do was intermittent fasting bad for women, and boom, you were getting hits. So, so it happened about a year ago, and what happened was we we took w- sort of a known thing. So I probably most people would recognize this as a female athlete triad. So you have a combination of very low body fat, excessive exercise, very low calorie intake. That that system sets up for amenorrhea in women and, and multiple other problems. And I get to how this applies to men in a minute, too. But it's the sort of this idea that, yeah, you get to too low of a body fat and you're not eating enough and you're excessively exercising, things are going to shut down. Yep. And that includes your your period. So what was interesting is the fitness world specifically caught on to the idea that women shouldn't, fast at all because some women at like 14% body fat who were taking part in marathons and preparing for massive competitions started having problems right? so um, the general idea here is that fasting is a tool like anything else and the leaner you are the less you need to fast which to anybody outside of fitness is, is completely logical right? The, the less body fat you have the less you have to diet, let's just take like fasting right out of it because mm-hmm. you're, you're done Right? Like if the goal isn't 0% body fat, you're, you're shredded, you're six-pack abs, you're okay, you can try eating the maintenance or above, like that's the goal. But we took it to a point where there was never a body fat level that was low enough, there yeah. was never a, never a level of performance that was high enough, so we went right back into thinking that we could, instead of eat, stop, eat, we'd diet, stop, diet, yeah, run our asses off, and then get confused as to why bad things were happening. The reason I'm, I'm somewhat irked about this is that it did raise a very valid point, which is to a lot of women, if, if you are excessively exercising or you're already lean, forget fasting. The, the topic is dieting. You yes. do not need to diet very hard. The part that I wish was brought to more people's attention was that the same thing happens to guys. We just don't have <laughs> as obvious markers for it. So a yeah. girl doesn't get her period. She will go to her doctor and say, something's up.
1: I, I gotta, I gotta say, Brad, women in general are better biohackers than men because they have better signaling and better body awareness exactly. because of their monthly cycle. Like it, yeah, they'll Whereas see it we, before we will.
3: You and me, we're let's imagine we're we're in our twenties and we're athletes, we're lean, we're fasting, we're dieting, and we're just we don't got it. We're lethargic, we're tired, mm-hmm. we can't go to of bed, no sex drive. You can go tell your coach, coach, I, I, I don't feel so good. I'm, I'm kind of tired. He'd be like, what the. No, lapse, go, right? They'll never bring that up to me again. And so that's the thing that irked me was that man or woman, you have to think of it this way. The leaner you are, the less you have to diet. Forget fasting, diet. Now, if you're fasting, because that's my gig, then the leaner you are, the less frequently so less often, or the shorter duration because you 've earned it you 're lean you 've accomplished what you 're trying to do now you 're basically fasting for health benefits and as a way to keep your weight in check so eat stop eat specifically was designed because of this my my personal style of fasting is fast eat normally eat normally eat normal fast eat not fast diet crazy fast yeah. or yeah. fast 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 and that's um, I imagine it 's the same thing that you uh, have with your coffee. You just want to put your head through a wall because everybody's doing bulletproof coffee, right? They put margarine in their coffee, <laughs> bulletproof coffee, nabob yeah. margin done. So intermittent fasting became what you label everything that's fasting. Yeah. And so people who were doing the my favorite thing ever, the people doing the 24-hour fast every day, <laughs> <laughs> figured out how they do it. And then saying, "Well, I don't, you know, fasting didn't make me feel great." I will go Okay, that's that's why I didn't, like, I it's, it's promise like you're, you're, you. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I promise you I did my research. When, and yeah. when writing that book, I did fast for 72 hours, realized I'm not ever doing that again. I don't want you to do it, and that's why I didn't write the book that way. So it was kind of irksome because it, it should have been obvious to most people. Instead of blaming the fasting, you should have been blaming the the combination of the level of body fat, the level of exercise, and the diet, which includes, but not exclusively, the fasting. So it kind of worked around there. But that was my my main issue, because we know from, from whether it's it's fertility data to like female athletes data, we know those three things aren't great. And then exasperating the problem with fasting and diet, and then whatever other sort of weird things you're doing with your diet, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's One of the things I always want to get across to people with my view on fasting, Mm -hmm. fasting should be used as a way to allow you to eat normally on the days you're not fasting. So the fast for me was the diet. What I don't think I ever got across clearly enough was that exact point. The fast is the diet. So I don't want you to layer it on top of your diet. I want you to replace your diet with it. So that's part of the, the next update of Eat, Stop, Eat, is maybe me making that a bit clearer is that this is on the days you're not fasting when you're doing Eat, Stop, Eat. I'd like you just to eat responsibly. I like to say like a grown up, right? Like like an adult. You don't get to eat like it's Halloween every day. But what I don't want is fast, eight hundred calories a day. Fast, you know, eight hundred yeah. calories a day combined with four hours of exercise, and wonder why you're crashing.
1: There's also just the notion of of total biological stress load. Yes. Uh, which is uh, something I think we, we both understand, where it's not just exercise, but like, oh, you didn't sleep? Oh, like you had 12 hours of, of aggressive meetings and then you got in a fight? Like, maybe you shouldn't fast the next morning. I just, you you I got, got
3: fired, came home, and found out you're getting divorced. Maybe take it <laughs> easy, right? And that, it's weird I say that, but we've actually had email correspondence with people, and I'm like, I don't understand. Like, Honestly, from all my background, I don't know what's going on. I, you should be losing weight. And then he goes, this is horrible because I also I just lost my job. And then my wife's <laughs> leaving. And I'm like, oh, okay, we left that part out. A yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, little
1: cortisol factor. It's
3: fairly significant. right? Yeah. So let's work on other parts first. So. But yeah, the total biological stress is something that well, we don't want to admit, right? Because yeah. we want to believe we're all professional athletes who just got missed in the draft. Totally. Right? So we can train four hours a day, you know, despite the fact that... For me, almost every professional athlete my age is retired, right? Now, I, I still think I should be able to train for two or three hours a day, yeah. compete at a high level four or five times in a week, right? Like, but you have to realize that's, not, that's, that's four 20-year-olds in peak condition and only the top 1% of 1% and the rest of us who aren't that person, we have to manage these things and balance them
1: out. I found that, that I did do a lot of intermittent fasting uh, with, with nothing in the morning when I was putting together my experiences for the book and just learning how to control my biology more. Um, especially earlier on, uh, I would get like the 11:30 11 a.m. just energy dip. Like I, I wasn't like starving like I'm gonna die, yeah, but it was like I, I really I'm in the middle of my work day. Uh, you know I, I have a social life and you know I, it, things are busy. And so I'm like, I can't bring it right now, and I, I need to do it. And and that was one of the things where I'm like, well, wait, what if I just had some fat because I really believe in fasting, but I also don't have the professional athlete sort of luxury of work my ass off and then recover my ass off because yeah. my recovery time is Not very limited.
3: Take a nap, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can't do that at work always. Yeah. Uh, yeah so the, um, the little dips, and they're how, difficult because they're different from for everybody.
1: How do you manage them?
3: Okay, so for me, what I found, again, so for everybody who hasn't read my book, shame on you, but no. Um, eat, stop, eat is a 24-hour fast but divided between two days. So if Dave and I were to start fasting today at 3, we would fast till tomorrow at 3. Yeah. So 24 hours, anybody who's saying you're doing eat, stop, eat by fasting for a day straight, that's technically 36 because you go night, day, night. But 24 hours divided between two days. You effectively get to eat every day. But the other thing it gives you is control over your start-stop times. So when I first started, 7 p.m. to 7 p.m. was a dream for me. It was the perfect fast. I didn't even notice it was happening. Um, and then two kids happened and there <laughs> were other changes. And 7-7, it didn't work. It did not work. By yeah. 4, I was, I was an angry, frustrated father, right? And it, was, it wasn't my fault. It was the kids. But, you know, it happened. I get it. And all I had to do was change it to a 2 p.m. to 2 p.m. fast. Everything changed. And a lot of it has to do with I always want you to be going through your personal hardest part of the fast. Usually my personal thought is it's when you're really switching down to an exclusively fat-burning metabolism. Mm -hmm. I want you to be asleep for that part. I want you to be completely out of it. So if 11 is kind of when you're hurting, changing those times around tends to help. The other thing is there are lots of um, very small cycles in the body we don't really talk about that allow you to change things like pyruvate and lactate back into glucose. So anything as simple as, if you have the luxury, getting up and going for a walk, doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be a long one, can also help. If it is a blood sugar issue, it's not always, it could be blood pressure, it could just be you really want to eat. And then finally, it's accepting for people like me that a lot of the midday grumpies, it, it wasn't hunger, it wasn't metabolic. I just was habitually trained to eat then.
1: Yeah.
3: And so I was breaking that training. That was the hardest part, getting all the way back to my first attempt at fasting. The hardest part of fasting wasn't the not eating. Because I was hungry, it was the not eating because of my habits. And when I drive down that road, at that time, I stop for coffee every time. So driving past the Tim Hortons, because I'm a Canadian, <laughs> was, it was like a knife, right? right in the gut. Because I knew I should be pulling over. And it took a while to get used to letting go of my entrained eating styles. So that could be it too. But there's all kinds of workarounds. It's never not impossible. And then the last thing, which is which is super cool, is you can stop fasting, right? So 24 is, is picked because I like it. It made for great research. It's memorable. 20 is still fantastic, Yeah. right? So people are like, I can always make it to 22, and then everything crashes. I'm like, well, then go to 21.
1: You're good. I, I tend to do 18 a lot. Is that still enough
3: in years? Yeah, my twelve to twenty-four. Well, twelve to seventy-two is my research, but okay. be honest—that's that's getting out there even for me. You start seeing significant changes at, at the twelve-hour mark, even before, depending on how much you ate the previous the meal right before you started. Anything past twelve to me, you're entering into the fasted state. You're, you're starting to make the shift. Influence going down, growth hormones going up. You're seeing inflammation responses. You're seeing. I'm going to say autophagic responses. I don't know if that's the right way to say autophagy. And then you see some other cool things. Um, your excretion of phthalates is, is in, increasing. Yeah, oh, man, 12 to 15 hours, you're starting to see these, these environmental toxin loads decreasing. So it does not have to be 24. I just prefer 24 over 2, right? So the occasional break from eating is really all I'm asking. 18, if that's what you do, is beautiful. Also, the leaner... So when I'm... Below 10%, I do 124 hour, 120 hour. If I'm like beach ready or I, you know I'm, I'm being really vain, just getting lean, I'll do a 20 to 20 because I'm lean. I don't have to do more. So a lot of it depends on the available fuel source, your body fat. If you've got a ton of it, you can probably handle 24. If you've been dieting, you're leaner, and 24 is getting hard, stop doing 24. That's that's kind of how I view
1: it. And so being less dogmatic is helpful. Mm-hmm. And- you mentioned that tough part when your body's kicking over into ketosis and, and how yep. that's stressful. Do you have an objection to using like a, a tablespoon of, well, in my case, I, w- I would use straight uh, C8 MCT because it's the stuff that goes most quickly into beta-hydroxybutyrate and then into uh, coenzyme A and then ATP. Essentially, you can measure ketones in blood uh, a half hour after you take that stuff. Yep. Like, yes. So kick-starting ketosis that way... It, Good or bad during an intermittent fast? I don't. I don't have a problem with it.
3: Anything cool. during the fasting, with a couple of caveats, right? Is if you're, if you're trying to sneak your way through a fast, so you, you could have totally made it, and you're just being lazy or giving into the want, right? There's a big difference between doing something like you're talking about and grabbing a handful of M&Ms just because they were there, <laughs> right? Yeah. But if my 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 big thing when I first started running each Stop Eat, and it was before sort of the bulletproof coffee movement, it was okay, can I have cream in my coffee? And I said, okay, well, I'd prefer you not to. Like, if I don't have cream in my coffee, I'm not fasting. I'm like, well, then have the cream in your coffee. If that's, it's if that's the difference yeah. in getting the benefits, if, if adding the cream into the coffee reduced you from 100% fasting benefit to 98.72%, I'm cool with that, right? So a lot of it's the mentality. If you're doing little things because you think it's going to improve it, by all means. If you're doing things because otherwise you're not going to make it, again, by all means. If you're getting away with doing little things, that's when I want you to grow up. and You you, you really have to wait four hours and you can have the eminence. Very,
1: very well said. Uh, uh, I, I really admire that. Um, for me, it was, you know, I, I want to be able to bring it all the time. Like, I want this energy and, like, I can do this. I, I've done it many, many times, but I suffer a performance decrease towards the end of it that I just don't want. And, like, I can stomp that out and I can still get what I'm looking for from it, um, which is why I do it. But it, it's, it's very individual. And, and I love that you're so open about how many hours are you going to do your thing? Uh,
3: yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter, right? It's <laughs> just, just do it. Totally. Yeah, there is no right way to do this. There There is wrong ways for, for you, right? But there's no way for me to tell everybody exactly how the entire world should attempt fasting. So I introduce you to it and you play with it until you get what works.
1: Well, let's switch gears a bit because yeah. one of the other areas of, of interest for me is uh, neuroplasticity and you know, brain training. I do a lot of neurofeedback, and, right. and you know, I've done this 40 years of zen thing many times for weeks. And i found sort of that having ketones present allows me to spend more time training my brain before I, I hit the wall. Just, you, you can bonk from you know, riding too far or running a marathon. You can bonk yeah. from neurofeedback too, and, and I was able to move the wall. But I don't know if there's a neuroplasticity component or if it's just a ketone-making ATP thing. So share with people who are listening, okay, what is neuroplasticity, the the sort of short version, and what does Eat, Stop, Eat or other types of intermittent fasting, what do they do for your neuroplasticity?
3: I've never been asked that. So to, to define neuroplasticity in a general way?
1: Yeah, just the, the idea that your nervous system um, can grow new can grow new nerves, BDNF, like brain-derived nootropic factor, things like that.
3: I, I, I want to say it's like the flexibility of your neurons to adapt, but I don't know if that's exactly the easiest way to explain it. You, you're dealing with the overall, the, the brain as a system mm-hmm. is the way I like to think of it, and, and truly, it's flexibility, almost like we talked about with the hermetic response, right? It's ability to adapt to its its environment. Um, and the stress is placed on it and that's a lot of what neuroplasticity is you could almost view would it be fair to say that neuroplasticity is almost the opposite of alzheimer's would people get that
1: maybe well, well yeah. we can look at at synaptogenesis growing new synapses we, we figured out your brain can do that in yep. response to environmental inputs and then there's myelination or myelinogenesis which is that you know the brain can the grow new myelin brain right? Yes. Which happens when you practice a lot. So those are like the two mechanisms that we know about from neuroplasticity. But I know that you've looked at what intermittent fasting does for like your brain. And
3: it's, yeah. it's hard because the, I'll tell you where I get caught on this and in terms of any sort of neuroplasticity, any sort of cognition research, even memory recall Stroop test, is there's a lot of research out there, but they don't divide fasts with adequate hydration <laughs> away from the fasts that include water. And and fundamentally, the short-term fasts that don't include water, you have a, a pretty immediate reduction in, in cognitive ability, um, the management of stress loads, the ability to recount numbers. Um, you, you just do bloody awful on the Stroop test. So the addition of water seems to be important, but we do know from the way – intermittent periods of not eating so chronically uh, affect the brain we're getting to the point where it seems to be i don't want to call it an improvement more as i do what we're seeing a suggestion in a delayed non-improvement delayed decay delayed stiffening or lack of flexibility so that's that's where i am with it now i'm not far enough into understanding that research to say whether or not we even have a hope that it's gonna reverse anything but I mean you you're probably farther into that than I am based on on the experiments that you're doing
1: Uh, well there's there's definitely a ton of research about ketones and Alzheimer's Um, you know I had uh, dr. Mary Newport on the show pretty early on she's talking about coconut oil and ketones and things and um, so we know fasting creates ketones so we know ketones seem to have a beneficial effect uh, on Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. um, from those bodies of research but, whether someone's ever tested uh ketones from food versus ketones from fasting on Alzheimer's patients, like I don't know i have- the
3: one that hurt me was when when that research came out, I don't know if it was a local newspaper, but you got the idea of like fasting for Alzheimer's. And I'm like, oh, don't, that's way, like, Alzheimer's is so devastating, Yeah. right, that I hate seeing that, oh, we can fix it in three days by fasting, so it's encouraging, but uh, man, yeah, that, when I saw that research come out, because it, first you're like, this is amazing, and you see the headlines an hour later, right, like, you're literally, I'm I'm barely through analyzing the, like, the introduction, and the headlines are already coming out, I'm like, oh, don't do that, like, it's, it's, it's it's so, so bad.
1: And also, like, we, we call... Alzheimer's disease, type 3 diabetes in some bodies mm. of research. I have yep. to say that the, the evidence is still out on that, but there's clearly some cognitive or some brain insulin resistance going the, on there. The,
3: the glucose toxicity theory, right?
1: Yeah. So I think telling someone who essentially has a blood sugar regulation issue, who's old and has weak mitochondria, that oh, like just don't eat for a while and you'll get better. Yep. Like Honestly, I, I don't want to be dramatic here, but like you could die if you don't eat and your system is weak. Like That can happen.
3: Yeah, that's kind of one of those things where you, you know, individual <laughs> type stuff is, is what mm-hmm. you want there. You want to deal with, which I think is what medical doctors are great for. They deal with the actual person. We're posting yeah. me who just writes a blog for anybody to read, right? So you have to be somewhat realistic. But I, I do find, because it's the, the two things you have going, you have a, a concept of glucose toxicity, in the actual brain. You have the idea that ketosis is either helping or delaying. It's really easy to go, like, oh, well, obviously, boom, right? The problem is glucose, go ketosis, everything's fixed. Um, but I don't think we're we're anywhere near there yet. But on on a protective side of things, that's where I think the research is, is should definitely kind of move very quickly, is, is in terms of people who have a, you know, you're prone to Alzheimer's, you have a history of Alzheimer's. Is there something we can do here?
1: There's definitely some hacks for Alzheimer's disease that are, that are out there. And I, there's so many people who have it and don't know it. And so many people who know they have it or a loved one has it that, like, the Internet is helping people be like, well, funny, like, my, my grandparents or my parents, they sure, yeah. like, they're more, I can talk to them when they do this. And then they talk about that enough times. And have you all seen, seen –
3: there's a crazy – I'm trying to remember here. There's some sort of connection between a pseudo-Alzheimer's and certain blood pressure medications.
1: Oh yes, yes.
3: Yeah. So you 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 literally you thinking of you Alzheimer's, and I don't know what it's like in the states, but in Canada there's like a handful of specialists in Alzheimer's. So once you you think that might be the issue, you're waiting seven eight months to meet a specialist. In the meantime, you're you know you're on drugs for something else, diabetes, and then leads to blood pressure, and you're on blood pressure med that could actually be contributing to the Alzheimer-like symptoms. I mean that's horrible, but it, it's also mind blowing because how much that must skew the data.
1: Well, I I actually have chronically low blood pressure and I have for a while. It's probably as a result of uh, chronic neurotoxin exposure from toxic mold. I, I lived in several houses that had mold that that jacked my biology. Oh the, the black mold of death behind the walls. Uh of... yeah, in fact I'm doing a documentary on that uh, because oh, yeah? it's become such a big problem that people like I don't know why everything's falling apart and I'm fat and I'm tired or I just it's lost my housing it. or it's, it's not just student housing. The experts I've interviewed are like 50% of houses have water damage at the low end and it goes up from there. So I, I brought in all these physicians who have been made ill by mold toxins and, and some of the world's top experts and like interviewed them all. And it's, it's going to be an amazing thing.
3: If you want to bash your head against the wall, when I was in, so out of res, so in the first few years yeah. in university in Canada, you're in res. And after that, you tend to go and live in house with a group of people. So we're in a, like a 30-year-old house, and we used to have oh, water oh. gun fights all the time. <laughs> like, so you're just spraying the drywall, giant super soaker guns,
1: right?
3: <laughs> Sorry for, for anybody who's living in that house now. I apologize.
1: But <laughs> well, it, It's funny because, like, a, a third of people have jeans where it's going to just trash them. And I, I remember my freshman year of college, we had one of those five-gallon water coolers in the room, and it leaked. Yeah. And, and my roommate was like, it smells like turtles in here all the time. Because we had mold in the carpet, yeah. and I didn't know I was genetically susceptible. And I'm like, I'm getting acne, and I'm gaining weight, and I'm farting death all the time, which are symptoms of this. And my nose is bleeding many times a day, and, and all this weird stuff. Right. And of course, my grades are not doing very well because my brain is t- shut down. I had no idea at the time. Like years but later.
3: Is- yeah, but water hose leaking. You put a towel under it. it Done, totally, right? right. <laughs> like,
1: salt. If, yeah. like you you might have a fan and, and you yeah. Might, but yeah, but it, it turns out that for everyone it's bad. And for me though, having acquired chronic low blood pressure as a result of that, the cognitive thing this is what made me think of this. Um, the cognitive thing you're talking about with Alzheimer's like it's metabolic, right? You don't have enough oxygen in your blood. In your brain, then you're going to have low performance, and you can increase oxygen. And then, if you don't have enough fuel, either glucose or ketones, you're going to have low performance. And if you get all that stuff in there, and your mitochondria are damaged by something, then you're going to have low performance. So it's like the stack where, like, get the fuel in there, and then let's see what happens. Very cool. Well, let's uh, let's see. There's two other big questions I want to ask you. Um, one of them is around cheat days. Mm-hmm. What's your take on cheat days? You know, I I've had people on the show who are like, you know, eat eat whatever the heck you want, kind of thing, uh, and others who are like, well, eat intelligently during your cheat day, and you know, don't set yourself back. Where are you on that spectrum? Like, you know, can, can I go out and have you know apple pie and and cherry turnovers, or is that not the right approach?
3: So I like I don't like the idea of chronic diet. You know, it's it, a calorie restriction thing. I don't mind if, if you averaged out your calorie intake over the course of two months, if it was low, but I really feel like you need to have days you're eating to at least maintenance. So Eat Stop Eat designed so almost all your days are to maintenance. If you didn't want to follow Eat Stop Eat, but you still wanted me to help you with your diet, I'd have you dieting for four or five days and just eating up to maintenance on three, two or three days. Right? Like I like those periods of just like, okay, like the, the mental stress the um ego depletion is what we call it of dieting Mm -hmm. it's it's difficult right you're literally constantly literally you're constantly making decisions about food it's exhausting so every once in a while i want you to take a break if you're dieting very very hard for for two weeks at a time does that suggest that just one day of overconsumption is a solution or should it be longer i would opt for longer i like the idea of eating the maintenance i I don't like the idea of a cheat day being uh, – once a week, I pretend it's Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, all mashed into one, and I just go to town. You eat like you know,
1: 6,000 calories and just – Yeah,
3: from, yeah. from a Skittles and M&Ms put on a pizza, like that kind
1: well, of thing. Well, that, that's the question there. I mean, is a cheat day of Skittles, M&Ms, and pizza, um, even with the right caloric number, is that different in your experience than a cheat day with – well, I would recommend grass-fed steak and sweet potatoes where you're eating like – it's not really a cheat day, but it's like a full fuel day, right?
3: dose dependent for me,
1: a full okay. fuel
3: day as opposed to I'm gonna to try to make up for a week's worth of calorie restriction in, mm-hmm. in one day. Now this my, my general opinion on that kind of cheat where it's it's gonna be a large amount of calories above what you need is it, it's gonna happen. I wouldn't plan it in. You're gonna have a wedding to go to, you know, you're you're gonna to go to a kid's birthday party and you're gonna eat the cake. So I would prefer not to plan that into my diet, because it's going to happen.
1: It's going right? to happen naturally, right? So you don't need to have a special day where you go out and you buy a wedding cake and eat the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah.
3: So, but in terms of using, the, okay, we'll say an eat-up day as opposed to cheat, because cheat gives the impression that you're yeah. going on for like a new record of calorie intake. Okay. But just a day to eating back up, I, I think that they're they're extremely helpful, if not physically, mentally. The The ego depletion, the psychological part of dieting can be exhausting and and. And mostly the reason why most people stop. Mostly, mostly. <laughs> the reason most, most people stop a diet. So to take a break from dieting every once in a while without undoing the damage, I, I think is sort of a fundamental part of a long-term diet strategy. The issue I run into with people is that you have to understand your fasted or dieted weight is, um, is, is a bit of a, an exaggeration. You have the, the water loss. You're just it's not your true weight. So on your eat day, if your weight goes up by a pound or two, please don't freak out, right? Because that's, yeah. that's just that's more, more in line. Like, it's when you're done, you're, you're dieting, and then after three or four days, you're like, oh my god, all the weight came back. I'm like, no, it didn't. That was just an artificial low. This is about where you are now. You should be happy. Now try to maintain that. So that would be the only thing, is, is mentally you have to be prepared for, on the cheat days, your weight's going to kind of go up. And just, you, People in dieting in general, when it comes to weight, you get really hypersensitive to these fluctuations without admitting that you had the exact same fluctuations before when you were heavy, yeah. right? So just be aware of that if you're going to enter them into your, enter sort of this cheat day, eat up day into your diet, that your, your weight will change. But long term, it's it's probably going to help you stay on that diet longer.
1: Well, Brad, it, it's been amazingly fun to have you on the show and get to ask some, some of these hard questions that most people just have never heard of. And I'm hoping everyone listening um just enjoyed learning more about fasting. Um, I I fully recommend that if you're listening to this and you're trying intermittent fasting or you practice it regularly, um, play with the timing and Eat, Stop, Eat 24 hours is totally legit. Uh, And read Brad's book because it's also totally legit. Why, thank you. And uh, every
3: time you see 24 from me, just in your head go 24-ish and then you'll kind of get (laughs) the flow of what I'm trying to do. Uh,
1: That's like a tweet right there. (laughs) Yeah, 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 perfect. So um, Brad, there's one more question, though, that I ask every guest, yep. and this is your top three recommendations for people who want to perform better. You want to kick ass at life. Yep. not doesn't have to have anything to do with fasting, but it can. So what are your three biggest nuggets?
3: Okay. First, outside of things that are going to land you in jail, rules are guidelines. They're only <laughs> guidelines. So especially when it comes to diet and exercise, you get hung up in these rules. Um, it'll defeat you. Right. So you're supposed to do three sets of six. Use it as set of six, instead of six, instead of four. Not the end of the world. Um, Pilon says 24 hours. If I don't do 24 hours, I'm not doing ESOP E. 24-ish. Stay cool with it. The, these guidelines, et cetera, um, they're, they're meant there to, to help and guide you on your way. But if you, if you treat them as these hard, fast rules, you'll burn out. So that, that's number one. Number two is the, the ups and downs of life, whether it's your weight, whether it's your performance in the gym. Um, the people who come to me wanting help on their diet and they present me with their Excel spreadsheet of everything and they're worried about these little blips, what you want to do is really think about the overall trend. If you get caught up in the two pounds up, two pounds down, one pound up mentality and then try to go backwards and find out why that happened, um, you, you can find amazing things and make breakthroughs. But also, you can make yourself completely neurotic. So so always go with the, the trend of what's going on. And then, again, another life thing I'm taking from diet or exercise, but you can apply it to everything, is reproducibility is the, the key to research, right? So if Dave had something that it turned out really, really well for him, and then I tried it, it turned out really well for me, then three of my friends tried it, it turned out well for them, it's more likely to be right than the one outlier who's bragging on the forums about how he's 302 pounds of 5% body fat and you get upset that you're not. So, reproducibility, the things that have had results for most people, something you should, you know, pay attention to that. But stop thinking that you're going to, you know, buck that system. So, if you are you think you're broken and it's that specific thing isn't working for you, well, it has worked for a lot of people. So... Let's look at other parts of your life that may be the issue. This goes all the way back to that guy who was, was just lost his job and divorced, right? Like the, Generally, the diet that he was on was very reproducible. Lots of people had good results with that. His exercise program, lots of people had results with that. So because they're so reproducible, I was able to look other areas of his life and find the issues. So that, that's another thing. It's always kind of be aware of everything that's going around and look for the, the weird blips, rather than the thing that sort of obviously sit in front of your face that you want to change that might not need to be changed. I think That last one was... There was a point there, I promise. If you've replayed that, it'll make sense.
1: All right, we'll, we'll boil it down. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, we will have a full transcript on the show, so... Perfect. If you enjoyed this podcast, uh, do Brad a favor and check out Eat, Stop, Eat. And please do me a favor and head on over to iTunes and leave a review for Bulletproof Radio. Uh, I do this as a labor of love to help a lot of people, try and get smart people on the show uh, that succeeded this time with Brad. And I really appreciate kind reviews because uh, those help other people find the show. Perfect. See you all in the next episode.